Y'all know I got a weird brain, right? So I'm sitting there watching the video. I love Mike Remington. He was one of my favorite people around here, and he's been pretty instrumental in this process of the new building. But he's like, I'm here at the new building, and if you're new, you're like, their building looks sad. Their building looks like rubble. Well, yes, it's rubble right now, and uh, the foundation stuff is getting underway. Super awesome, just all the stuff that has transpired over the last handful of years to get to this point. And so again, maybe if you're a guest with us today watching online for the first time, yes, we are going to finally have a space that we call home for everything on Sunday morning. It's been a huge blessing and opportunity for us to meet here at the high school for nearly 12 years that is a journey, man. It's almost like we're trying to compete with the Israelites for 40 years in the wilderness. But we're going to cut it short by a lot, which is awesome. Uh, but hey, continue to be praying for that whole project. I mean, everything's going great, uh, but we always want to pray for that. And then also be thinking about what your hopes are for the hub and how you also can be praying for those things that you hope to see it do. Because one of the things that's important to us is, man, we want to do stuff for the good of the city. And so much of what we're going to do with this space is open it up as much as possible to rub shoulders with people so that they kind of get to know us and they go, oh man, these people really do care about us. They really are invested in seeing our community thrive, seeking the welfare of our city. That's something out of the book of Jeremiah that's pretty precious to me. As far as when we seek the welfare of our community, we actually find welfare in the process of that, or security, or safety, or encouragement, and a sense of community. So, very excited for the Hub for all of that. Now, today is not about the Hub. Today is about something different. Uh, last Sunday in the field, we started a brand new series, Dave's Playlist Volume 2 which means there was once a volume one about five years ago. We were looking through the Psalms, and today we're doing the same thing, and for the next six weeks, we're gonna be looking at various Psalms or whatever else. Now, to kind of get into this, the first thing I wanna help you understand is that when it comes to this book, the Bible, uh, while it's bound as one volume, if you will, it's actually a series of different types of works or pieces of literature, and those kinds of literature pieces uh, are called genres, right, or styles of writing. And so with that, you might have like narratives, which are stories. And in fact, our next series after this, starting in October, is gonna be all about the Sunday school stories, but from an adult point of view, because there's stuff we don't teach in Sunday school for a reason. We don't want to traumatize your kids. And those are the ones we're gonna look at, which is gonna be great. So I love the stories and narratives. Those are probably some of my favorite stuff to talk about, right? But you have other styles as well. You'll have letters that are like in the New Testament. Uh, you're gonna have something called apocalyptic, which was what we did a few weeks ago, looking at the book of Revelation and all the imagery and everything else. So different styles. But one of those styles is this idea of wisdom literature. Pieces of just idealism or struggle or strain or stress or insight to life, all of that is kind of wisdom literature. And when you look at the Old Testament in particular, this is going to be something like the book of Job. Uh, it's called Job, not Job. You look at it, you go, his name is Job. No, his name is Job, but it looks like Job. Uh, or it's going to be Ecclesiastes, which is my personal favorite because it's just so dark, all right? Uh, or you have something like the Song of Solomon, which is saucy and racy, right? And it's got its wisdom there. But the book of Psalms, by far, is probably the well, most well-known, the most favored of people, and uh, is the one that most people probably uh, tend to read, especially in times where life is tough. But here's the thing about wisdom liter literature that I find kind of tricky from a uh, kind of explaining point of view. And that is the fact that when you read it, uh, you see there's rawness, there's visceralness, and sometimes it breeds confusion because you're like, should a person writing the Bible say the thing that is in the Bible right here? 
So you see that like, like Job is a good example of this, where uh, at the beginning of his, his story, uh, he's like, I'm not going to curse God. I'm going to praise God. No matter what happens, I'm on God's team. I know God's on my team. But by the time you get like three quarters of the way through toward the end, he's frustrated at God and he's angry. And he's like, why aren't you here? Why aren't you showing up? You're suspect to me. I'm not sure you are who you claim to be. And so when you read that, you're like, wow, is that okay to, to say that? Or Solomon in that book that I love, Ecclesiastes, he gets to this point where he's like, you know what? I'm not even sure when we die if we go on to something after this. I don't know if we're just like the animals. I don't know if we go up, we go down. I have no clue. I don't know what to do with this, right? And then especially when you get into the Psalms with a dude like David, that dude is a mess. And his messiness shows up, right? There's times in his work where he's looking at God and he's like, you know what? You're negligent. You're neglectful. You're not showing up when I need you. Why have you ditched me? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you bounced out of my life when I need you the most? Or sometimes when he's talking about his enemies, he is just vicious and bloodthirsty. He's like, kill them all, every one of them, you know? That's just a space. And yet what I love about that too is that, you know, kind of one minute you see he's, he's like bemoaning things, the next minute he's kind of blessing God for things, and I go, this dude is just real. He's just real. And that's probably why I tend to like the Psalms, because David says in the out loud what all of us tend to wrestle with on the inside. He's just dumb enough to write it down, and we can all read it in the Bible, right? But that's what I love about the tone of all of this, right? He just lives out loud, for good or bad, right or wrong, vengeful or blessed, he's out in the open. And we can all learn from that out in the openness. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at select psalms, this Dave's Playlist, Volume 2, and today is Psalm 63, where David is on the run, he's in the wilderness, he's just desert-stranded, and he's desperate for God. And so right now, I'm going to go ahead and pray, but before I do want to remind you, we have an app, and in the app, there are notes that you can follow along with today. Again, just blanks that you can kind of tap along as we go, and uh, hopefully from that, it's a good reminder for all of us uh, as far as like, man, in, in, in times of stress or strain, here is a road to implement. And so with that, let's go ahead and pray together, and then we'll jump right into the Psalms. Jesus, I thank you so much again for the fact that you give us these personalities that honestly, when we look, if David were alive today, we'd be like, that's a guy to probably steer clear of in a lot of ways. He would be very, very um, just unfamiliar to what we assume to be a person of God. And yet you use him to teach us. You use him to show us. And so from that, I pray that we will learn from him, learn from his desperation. And in our desperate seasons, that we will implement what it is he was seeking to do in Psalm 63. And so, Jesus, we thank you for today. We love you, and we certainly need you, as we will see in this psalm. And so you deserve all the praise and all the gratitude, and we give it to you now in your good name. Amen. So if uh, maybe you're new to Christianity, you're new to the Bible or something like that, I just want to kind of give you a sense of what the psalms are, because that's a word that we don't use very often. But psalm is just a song, right? It's kind of that idea. And so when we talk about the book of Psalms, which is right in the middle of your Bible, we're looking at 150 cataloged songs that are from the Old Testament. 
And while it's 150 chapters in length, it's not actually the longest book of the Bible. Uh, That's actually Isaiah. After that, it's Genesis. And then it's the book of Psalms by way of word count, right? So it's about 30,000 words in the book of Psalms. And again, it's just this playlist of all sorts of different spirit style genres of songs. Some are upbeat, some are lowly, some are frustrated, some are happy. It's kind of all in there. The other thing you want to know about the Psalms is that it's not just David who writes these. In fact, the, the, the number of people that have contributed to the playlist here is probably too vast for us to fully know. Some of it's anonymous. We're not sure who did it. Sometimes Solomon is a guy that has one of his songs kind of put into the book. Moses has one of his songs put into the book. There's actually a dude named He-Man, which is rad. Masters of the universe are on the playlist right there. So cool, right? You have the sons of Korah. You have somebody named Asaph that's in there. There's all sorts of different names. But David contributes about half of all the stuff that we see. And I do find that interesting because, like I said, I tend to read the Bible trying to pay attention to the, the, the human nature behind the characters. And when I look at David, I really do see him as kind of a messy, messy guy, one of the most messy people of the entire Bible. So much so that I'm just going to be honest with you for a minute. I sometimes struggle with the fact that when I get to the New Testament then, I see that David is used as like the archetype of the coming Messiah and how Jesus fulfills as a truer and greater king what David was. And I look at that and I get a little torn because I'm like, outside of David being a king and Jesus being a king and David being the bloodline from which Jesus hails, other than that, I don't see a ton of relationship between like, David and Jesus. Like, I'm just admitting when I read it, I kind of struggle with that. Uh, Because you have David, who is uh, very much a warmonger in his story, where Jesus is very much the peacemaker. And when it comes to enemies, man, David, he was just angry. He would curse them. He would hate them. He would want to see them destroyed. But when Jesus talked about his enemies and our enemies alike, he's like, bless them, do good to them, pray for them, like a very different tone. When it comes to volatility in life, David seems very explosive, where Jesus feels very calm. And then ultimately, you look at Jesus, and he's a single guy, celibate, selfless pacifist, who by his sacrifice makes it possible for us to enter into kind of the spiritual temple of God. And then you look at David. Dude had eight wives, about a hundred concubines. He was adulterous, he was selfish, he was a thug, who willingly killed hundreds, thousands of people, so much so that God says, you're a man of violence. You can't build my temple by which people can enter in to my presence and worship me. So two very different personalities. But at the same time, we also see in David that he wanted God, that he loved the law of God, and when he made mistakes and sins, he sought to take ownership of those things that he did. In our world, we would say, David is complicated, right? He is complicated. He is a mess. So in some ways, we could say he is a master sinner, a struggling saint, and always an open book. And so with that, we open the book to Psalm 63, the song for today, and it starts with the first point in your notes, which is Dave's current plight. What is the space he finds himself in? And it's actually what we just read in our reading this morning, where it starts in verse 1 and says... Oh God, you are my God. 
I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. Now, one of the things I tend to try to highlight about reading the Bible is the the challenge that we don't always have tone reflected in what we read. Sometimes we get lucky and we do. Other times it's tough to know exactly the tone. And I think that's kind of the challenge here when you first read it. In other words, when he says, oh God, you are my God, is that happy? Is that sad? Is he triumphant or is he exasperated? Is he fatigued or is he focused? What's going on? Sometimes what helps is to try to understand, but what was the setting or the catalyst by which he then is writing this song? What is it in reference to, or what are the the circumstances that are playing out in his life to then suddenly bring this to bear in his world? Well, it seems there's two possible settings, one early in his life and one later in his life. If it's earlier, it was when he was anointed as king, basically, uh, but the actual reigning king is threatened by David. His name is Saul. And so David is on the run out in the wilderness trying to stay alive from the king's desire to kill him. And so that might be the context, right? That might be an option. The other is toward the the latter half of his life where he's on the run from his son. His son Absalom, he hates his father. He has dethroned his father. He has taken up the throne of his father and he seeks to murder his father. And so David is on the run from his own kid. Now, when we look at that story, we actually see a little reference to this idea of a parched and weary land that he is in as he's on the run from his kid. And I tend to think that that is the tip-off. That lets us know that what he's up against isn't just your run-of-the-mill foe, somebody that doesn't like you, that you don't know that well. No, this is intimate. This is personal. This is, in fact, going to be the heir to his throne if it's good, but it's bad. And so his son is trying to accelerate all of that. And so David's family is a wreck. He's been displaced as king. His son literally hates his father so much, he wants his dad dead. Because of this, David's faithful military officials are like, dude, we got to kill your kid before your kid kills you. Imagine being in that space as a parent. We have to kill your son before your son kills you. And so he's torn, he's exiled, he's sad, he's under duress and threat. And so when you read the words, oh God, you are my God, I don't read that as like just some kind of uh, reverent platitude, like a really kind of poetic opening to a lovely song. I, I see that as an exasperated declaration, right? It's like, He's revealing what's going on internally. His inner world feels like this, and he's contrasting it with his outer world that is around him, right? I feel like a desert inside. I feel parched and weary inside. Oh God, my God, I'm melting down in my life because, man, this space I'm in, both inside and outside, it is worn thin. I don't know if you've ever been out in the harsh desert before. I grew up in Arizona, the land of kitty litter and cacti, man. Everything there is just designed to die and kill you, right? It's just like, it's all that way, right? And, and as kids growing up there, man, it's just wild when you see the desert, not just be the desert, but when it becomes drought-ridden desert. Like when I was in high school, I used to go water skiing at this lake, Lake Mary. You go there today, there's no Lake Mary. Because Arizona's been in a drought for decades. So the desert is more deserty. 
In fact, have you seen uh, the, some of these pictures, like these swirls that are beginning to die in Arizona and just topple over? Because the desert is so drought-ridden that things that have designed to, or figured out by way of just kind of growing and evolving to handle that arid environment, they can't handle the arid environment anymore. That is desert on steroids. That's parched and weary. And so that's David's outer world, right? Harsh, hot, hellish habitat. But his inner person is even more thirsty and more longing, right? Have you ever been there? Like just personally, you, yourself, where you go, man, I can relate to this, where my, my heart, my soul, my psyche is just really depleted and desperate. Right? I, I think about our, our sweet friends, the Coles, who just lost their granddaughter, right? Mid-20s, horrible accident, right? It's in those spaces, right, where you realize that. Or I think about our friends here, the Terrys, that just lost their daughter in her 30s, sudden, out of nowhere, where you, your soul is ripped open. You are laid bare in that space. That's dryness, that's weariness of your heart, Maybe your marriage is struggling, or maybe it had a season where you're like, this is awful. How do we stay together? I can't face this person. I don't like this person. I don't want to be with this person. Maybe that is what you've sensed. Or maybe you battle with anxiety or depression, or you're even wondering, is life worth living at this point because I don't know what to do next, and if I have to live like this for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years of my life, I just would rather punch out than continue to move forward. Or maybe it's your kid is self-destructing, or you don't even know how to coach or counsel your kid because they're just so hostile to you. You feel like you're a David to an Absalom, and you don't know what to do with all of that. There's all kinds of crises, right? Job loss, long-term health care problems. Maybe you're a caregiver to a family member or your ailing parents, or you have some mental health hardship that you're dealing with, and then maybe even just spiritually. You're like, hey, all the other things in life are fine, but I feel like God's distant. He's far I feel like I come to, to sing songs on Sunday and I'm just like mouthing words or I don't even want to sing or why am I even here? Like all of that is the space that David finds himself in. And so maybe we can sit up and go, man, I can learn something from this guy. Maybe I can be like this guy even in that space of a dry and weary soul where it doesn't feel like there's always water. See, he's hurting and he's desperate and he's crying out to God. And it seems that in this it's not like God has quite shown up yet, right? That, because why would he be saying, I'm, I'm, I'm thirsting, I'm longer, longing for you, I, f- I feel dry. Like there's, he's, he's yet to experience the thing. So this isn't God, thank you for showing up in verses one, two, and three. This is more like, God, I, I need you to show up and be there. That seems to be his current plight. But this causes them to reflect then on a past experience, Right? It's like, this is my current world in the wilderness, but I want to think back to a time of beautiful worship. And so in verse 2, he says, I've seen your sanctuary. I've seen you there in that space doing what you do. I've gazed upon your power and your glory. Now, a couple of things about this that I love. First of all, it's a juxtaposition, right? It's kind of like the yin to the yang, the plus to the minus. It's like that. And so here he is in the worst time of his life, right? 
and he's, he's really stuck there right now. Like, how does it get any worse than your kid hates you so much, they want you dead, and they want your legacy gone, and they're going to take your throne and wipe all remembrance of you from the map if they can. That's your worst space. So what's he do? He reflects on the best time and the best space that he can recall which for him was on this location called Mount Zion. It was in the makeshift sanctuary of God where the Ark of the Covenant that held the Ten Commandments and the Staff of Aaron and some of the manna from the the wilderness journey, all of that is in the Ark, and and he remembers that time. Because the temple hasn't been built yet. It's going to be his son Solomon that builds it. David's forbidden to build it because he's a violent guy, but there's this temporary space. And then that temporary space called the tabernacle or the tent that's there, it is opulent, It is beautiful. It is shaded, right? It's a very dark interior to the tent. And he can't go all of the way in, even as king, but he can get pretty close. And he remembers this time where God's glory shows up in that space, and he just revels in those moments. And he thinks about that in relationship to the fact that now he's in this scarce, drought-ridden land. There is no shade. There is no sense of presence or power or glory but he still is going to hold on to that past thing to give him present comfort. And you know what? That can be helpful. Because one of the things I've learned over the course of time is that many of us have that, that historic golden season in our Christianity. Maybe it was in your youth group or in college or that first church that you really got excited about Christ. And that's always going to be that golden era where you hold on to that. That was that precious thing. It's never been quite duplicated since. But it's a thing that can kind of mobilize you looking at the past for something you're facing in the present and moving into the future. And that seems to be what David's doing. So he's like, man, I am not in safe space. But God, you can be safe space even in my arid space. Maybe I'm not going to have that sense of your power and your glory in a supernatural event in your sacred kind of tent, but I can have it out here in my tent out here on the run. So he's longing for that. He's holding on to that. And I think that's good because you know what? If, if looking back at some historic event becomes a blessing for us to move forward, great. Now, if you look back at that historic golden era and you just let it be a bummer and nothing's like what it was and you'll never be quite satisfied, that could be really draining. But he's looking from the positive. I have this past thing. I have a new longing because looking at that past thing and so I'm going to move forward. Ultimately, he wants to experience what he experienced then and remember what he longs for most, which is verse 3, is this idea that God's unfailing love is better than life itself. Which says a lot when you're out struggling in the desert and you're feeling like, I could die any day from this. Like, life's pretty important. But he goes, no, your unfailing love is better than life. Uh, To me, this is a little bit of the Old Testament equivalent of life is better with Jesus, honestly. Right? He's like, there's life, but then there's life really alive. And life really alive isn't just breathing, eating, walking, working, doing. Life really alive, he says, is, man, I sense your unfailing love for me, your loyal commitment to my life. He's like, man, life is better with God when you know his loyal love for you. You can, you can do life apart from that, but it's not living fully alive. He wants to live fully alive. He remembers that God's unfailing, unfaltering love is the real fuel of life. And so he says, how I praise you. 
even in exile and misery, even in a, a sense of a, a level of kind of God's absence there because he's longing for a thing to be present. Even in that, he doesn't lash out like, God, where are you? But rather, he longs for the presence. And so he doesn't issue a criticism. He has celebration. And that becomes his central path moving forward. Right? He, he's kind of reflected on some things. He's remembered what he's experienced. And so his central path is it's just the, the trajectory in which he's going to live. Verse 4. He says, I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast, and I will praise you with songs of joy. So I love this because he's like, you know what? Maybe I don't have access to the sanctuary on Zion, but I'm going to create a sanctuary here out in the desert. And I'm going to worship in this space no matter what. He is relentless to seek this happen. And I think it's pretty impressive because, again, having been an Arizona kid and been in the desert and gone camping in the desert and things like that, I'll tell you what you don't want to do in the heat of the day. Raise your hands and sing and praise. You want to just lay low to the sunsets, man, and then you can do fun stuff, maybe. It's still like 102 degrees and 1 in the morning, and it's dumb down there in Arizona sometimes. But, but I go, for him to do this is it, so impressive to me because it's resolve, you have to be resolved to be in that space because he's hunted, he's hurting, he's fatigued, but he, he resists and rebels almost against the status quo by saying, I'm going to rejoice anyway. I, I might even be struggling to sense the presence of God, so what is the way forward? Is it to curse God? No, it's to seek God more. I'm going to want him more. It's going to refuel me to pursue him more. So that's what he does. And so instead of wallowing in his conditions, he worships his creator by day, and then by night he gets after it even more. Verse 6, he says, I lay awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night. Let's be honest, man. When life's falling apart, nothing's going right, you know the worst time? Nighttime. It is, right? When you go to bed, and you need your brain to stop thinking, and what's it want to do? Let's start thinking about everything. All the concern, all the worry, all the misery. You're going to project every negative outcome. Nighttime is awful. And then if you actually do fall asleep, then your subconscious says, hey, let's dream about this madness. Right? So I look at that and I go, man, he does something brilliant here. He says, my mind is tempted to run away with me, so I will be mindful in the space where it's most apt to run away with me. And I will reflect on you instead of reflecting on what it is I fear or I loathe or I'm scared of or worried by or whatever. It's so conscientious. And so you see a structure, man. He's thinking on the past to strengthen his present, to give faith to his future, regardless of the conditions. And so he's just very, uh, again, just laser-driven to say, all right, I've got to zero in on God in this space. I have to. Because God will be a sustenance, his restfulness, and also his assistance. He says in verse 7, Because you are my helper, God, I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you, your strong right hand. It holds me securely. See, what I dig about this is, first of all, he kind of presumes on God a little bit here, right? Because again, God maybe feels a little distant. He goes, but you're my helper. And so I know you're going to help me. 
And while I'm under this blazing sun, I know I will be found in the shadow of your wings. So I'm going to sing for joy. I'm going to start singing for joy before I feel the joy. I'm going to start celebrating your provision and your protection even before I actually experience your provision and protection. I'm going to be proactive so I know I'm going to receive something from you, and I'm going to love that when it comes, but in the meantime, I'm going to keep longing for it and seeking it till it shows up. That is such a powerful lesson. It says, because of this, I cling to you as your right hand holds me securely. Right? So you just picture the scene where here's this battle-worn older king just gripping onto God and the God's right hand upholding him. It's, it's a powerful image. In fact, it was one that I, I experienced in a very different kind of way here just a couple of months ago. Uh, so uh, my wife and I, we went over to the UK for a big trip and it was like one of the last nights that we were in London and we went to this pub, and we're sitting there, and we're kind of at the window or whatever else, and we're just having dinner, and then suddenly the whole pub erupts in this whoa kind of thing. And it was like one of those woes, like when somebody gets blown up in football with a hard hit, like you're like, oh, kind of thing. And, and so we look up, and there's this guy getting beat up by these four young thugs about a block down the street. And everybody's like, whoa, as the guy hits the ground. Right? So I jump up and I'm going for the door. And Ellen's like, Matt, what do you think? You're what are you doing? Because she knows me because I've done this before. So I'm like, that dude's a need, right? And she knew that I was going to try to get one of the young guys to figure if I got one, they'd have to come and deal with her. So I was going to go after one of the guys. And then I'm like, yeah, that's right. I'm a grandpa now. I probably shouldn't fight. You know, so I'll go for the guy. Right? So run out and go to the guy and, and kind of pick him up. And he's bleeding. And the these young guys just take off running or whatever else. And this guy is traumatized, right? And he, it's the weirdest thing. I was the only dude to leave that bar that night. It was so bizarre. It'd be like, there's a person in need, and he needs a strong right hand, and nobody wants to know. This is so weird. And so I walked him back to his place a few blocks, and, and he was just holding on to me, just kind of quivering, because he was just like, I just got just throttled. You know, and I was like, dude, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be with you. It's going to be fine. We're going to get you back to your place and everything else. And that image is that image of how God kind of comes to us when we're throttled and beat down and we're quivering under the weight of whatever is going on. And it's like, God is the strong right hand. This is, we're going to get you back to where you need to be. You're going to be safe now. I'm going to walk with you. We're going to get you home. Right? Like, that is what God is for David. And so David is in anguish. And he knows it, but he knows God's going to be there for him. And from this, David is seemingly beginning to feel it. And then it, it kind of fuels then his outlook, which is the fourth thing in your notes, Dave's future confidence. Based on all of this, he says, man, those who are plotting to destroy me, they're going to come to ruin. They will go down to the pit of the earth. They will die by the sword and become the food of jackals. This is where you're like, wow, Dave, what do you really think of your enemies, you know? But again, I think it's interesting, right? Um, I'm, I'm not always like the biggest fan of how David sees his enemies. It's always like, hey, you guys are dirty, rotten scoundrels, even though David wasn't always the cleanest dude in his own life. But I get that sense of when you feel wronged, you want vindication, right? You want God to show up and, and kind of punish your enemies. Like, that's a normal human trait. David is exercising this normal human trait, and I think it's a particularly messy because it is in relationship to his kid, too, right? 
you're going to see he's very torn because there's a whole like military structure behind his son and he's like i want those people to suffer but i know by implication it may mean that my my son suffers too because this is an insurrection somebody's going to die it's the king or the king's son by the end of this somebody's going to die and he knows that and he's going to weep bitterly when it happens when that finally does happen and his son is killed by one of david's generals david weeps but he knows there's going to be no other outcome it's either him or his kid and so from this he goes man i trust in god whose right hand holds me i'm weary but you're going to deliver me i know you will but this doesn't flow from his arrogance it flows from his dependence God, I'm relying on you. That's how I know the, the outcome will be what it is, as opposed to, God, I'm going to do this on my, uh, my own because I'm a pretty skilled warrior. I'll go take him down. It's like, no, God, I'm going to rely on you. And that leads to Dave's final resolve, the last point in your notes. By contrast to the enemies against the king, the king will rejoice in God. All who swear to tell the truth will praise him, while liars will be silent. See, throughout the psalm, you may not have noticed, but it's been in first person. Uh, I, me, my, you're my God. You know, uh, they're against me, but I'm going to be for you, God. Like, all of that is first person. And then he kind of closes it out into third person. The king, his God, his enemies. But the whole message is still the same, right? The faithful of God, and David is putting himself in the shoes of the faithful of God. They rejoice in God. They vow themselves unto God. They speak what is true on behalf of God, and then they experience from that the faithfulness of God. That's really his heart. And doing those things, man, I know God will be faithful, as opposed to the liars who are eventually silenced and abandoned by God. Now, at the core of this, what's the difference? Is it that David is more forceful, more intelligent, more morally superior? None of those things. It's that basically he is dependent, and he's earnest, and he's discontent with the status quo, right? I'm not going to just settle for God being out there, and that's just what it is. No, he's like, man, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to labor, and I'm going to pray and praise and sing and raise my hands and seek until he is present in my life. Thus he longs for the unfailing love of God that leads him to deeper praise and ultimately the reminder that life is better when you sense the loving kindness of God. Right now, I want to invite everybody to simply bow your heads, close your eyes, kind of find that private space right now just for you and God to kind of join, right? To connect with them, to hear from him, to call out to him, whatever you need to do. Maybe, again, you're frustrated with God, and you need to say, God, I'm, 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 I'm just, I'm put out with you right now. We gotta talk about it. That's awesome. God's into that. We're gonna see that happens with David, too. Maybe you need to say, God, I just praise you, no matter what's going on. Maybe that's the space you need to be in. Maybe you're like, man, life is so good. I just wanna thank him for all the good things happening right now. It's a beautiful season. It's like that with him in the sanctuary, enjoying his power and glory. Awesome, thank him for that. Those spaces sometimes are few and far between in life. Maybe for some watching or in this room today, you're like, man, I don't really know God in the way of a personal relationship through Jesus Christ. So maybe that's your first move today, is to say, God, I know that I have 
crossed your lines in life. The Bible calls this sin, this idea of crossing lines, missing marks. Uh, it's falling short of God's ideal, his perfection, his design. And every one of us have done it. Like David is the supreme example of that. And, and maybe you're saying, you know, I recognize my sin. And I see Jesus that you came, you lived, you died on a cross, you rose from the dead to give me life with you. Life abundant, life eternal. Life is better with Jesus sincerely because you know the loving kindness of God that is better than life itself when you follow him. If that is your prayer today, I wanna follow Jesus for the first time in my life. Man, we would love to know. There's gonna be a number on the screen afterwards. There's a tile in our app that you can tap and say, I made that decision today. I'm gonna be out at the front door. Would love to hear you made that decision today. Or maybe today it's just recommitment, recalibration for you. You're like, I follow Jesus, but I'm not quite following Jesus, and today is the day you want to just kind of refollow anew. Whatever it is, man, I encourage you to talk to him about it. Approach him in openness and honesty and thoroughness. Jesus, we thank you that you are patient with us. We thank you that we can look at a guy like David, and from that we see somebody that had this profound relationship with you, and he was truly a mess. And so how much more we know that we can approach you with boldness because Jesus is what you have done for us by coming, living, dying, rising, ascending, and then saying, man, you can come to my throne when you are weak, when you are weary, and you will find rest for your souls. May we find rest in you, and from that we find strength through you so that we might live for you. We thank you, Jesus, in your good name.